Good morning. Um, hello. Uh, as Steve said, my name is Ruben, and I'm part of the church here. I help lead the Alpha Course and the Connect Group, as Steve's mentioned, at midweek as well. And I'll be taking us through the next section of Ephesians, looking at chapter 6. But I wanted to start by asking you a question. What will you be doing this time tomorrow, at about 11 o'clock on Monday morning? Now, that thought might bring great joy. You might really love uh, what you'll be doing this time tomorrow, or fear, or maybe some uh, trepidation. You might be in some kind of paid work. You might be looking after kids or grandkids at home, or studying at school or college. Or maybe you're volunteering at church or uh, in the community. I wanted to quickly show you what I'll be doing uh, this time tomorrow. I am a writer, writer and editor in the communications team at OMF International. OMF is a missionary organization which sends church planters and Christian workers to serve in East Asia, as well as working to share the gospel with East Asian people around the world, including in the UK. And so this time tomorrow, what I'll be doing is preparing for a planning meeting for the next few issues of Billions, which is our supporters magazine, which I edit and produce. And on the screen are a few articles that I have worked on recently. So I hope you're thinking about what you're doing this time tomorrow. And then think, do you think that God cares about that? Do you think that that is part of God's mission and God's plan uh, for your life, part of extending God's kingdom in the world? You may think that with my job, it's really obvious that that's part of God's mission. It's very obvious from the title of those articles, the kind of work that I'm involved in. But what about your work? What about the things that you'll be doing? As we'll see from our passage in Ephesians today, the good news is that God really does care about what you do. Whatever your daily work is, it's part of his plan for us to show the world what he's like and to be witnesses for him wherever we are. If you've been with us over the last few weeks, you'll know that we're in a series looking at Ephesians in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus, which is in modern-day Turkey. It was written in around AD 60, which is about 30 years after Jesus walked the earth. Paul starts his letter with fantastic theology and worship in chapters 1, 2, and 3. But if you've been with us recently, you'll know that in the second half of the letter, Paul gets really practical, and he explains how all of the theology that he's given us in the first few chapters works itself out in our daily lives. And we've seen that in areas like marriage, and last week, Ian helped us look at the whole issue of parenting, which was quite appropriate for Father's Day, really. Someone planned that very well. So our passage in Ephesians 6 today tackles another practical area, which is how we live for Jesus in our working lives. In Paul's time, that meant relationships between masters and slaves, or bond servants, and there's a bit more on that later on. In this passage, Paul shows us that knowing who we're truly working for transforms the attitude that we bring to work on Monday morning. So we're looking at Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 to 9, and it'll be really helpful if you can have that open in front of you, actually in a paper Bible or on your phone, uh, but the words will also be on the screen so you can follow along. Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, 
not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bond servant or is free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. So I'd like to look at that passage under these four headings. Know who you're truly working for. Then doing good work is a good thing. Third, to work cheerfully. And fourth, to know that justice is coming. But before uh, we look at those four topics, there's an important question which you might already have anticipated, which is this one, which could be a whole topic all of its own. Don't worry, I'll keep it brief. Um, the question is, does the Bible support slavery? And it's interesting that some people have talked about freedom and the freedom that we have in Christ already this morning. But does the Bible support slavery? Some critics of Christianity will use passages like the one that we just read to suggest that the Bible does support slavery. And it's true that in the past, many Christians were slave owners. And in this passage today, Paul talks about bond servants or slaves. And you might be surprised that Paul tells slaves to be obedient, and he doesn't tell masters to set their slaves free. So does that mean that the Bible supports slavery? No, it doesn't. Here's why. It's helpful to understand the context of the time Paul was writing in. Slavery was a fact of life in Roman times. Between 10 to 20% of the population of the Roman Empire in the first century would have been slaves. They did a wide variety of jobs. Some of them were quite highly skilled and well-treated, although others were not. Many of the slaves that Paul was writing to would have worked in houses. They would have done cooking and cleaning and things like that. Other slaves might have worked on construction projects for the Roman state. Many slaves would have been prisoners of war. And unlike the Atlantic slave trade in the 18th and 19th centuries, which is probably what you most think of when you think about slavery, uh, slavery in Roman times was not based on the color of people's skin. Slavery in Roman times was not for life. And people could often be set free or could buy their freedom. But slaves were the complete property of their owners. They had no rights and were often mistreated. So that sounds quite bad, doesn't it? And you might think, well, why doesn't Paul want, pe- want those prisoners to be set free? But it's helpful to remember that at this time, Christians were a minority. They weren't in a position to change or end slavery in the Roman Empire. They couldn't vote for a government to have different policies and encouraging slaves to rebel and to disobey their masters would have probably got those slaves killed. Also, telling slave owners to set their slaves free might have been counterproductive. There were actually laws in Roman times about how many slaves a slave owner could set free at any one time. But what Paul's words in this passage and elsewhere in the Bible do is show that Christianity created a new kind of community. A new community where the whole basis of slavery and people owning other people was undermined. A community where people, slave and free, were one in Christ Jesus and called each other brother and sister. A new community where slave owners and slaves worshipped Jesus together. Where people were recognized as having equal value as those made in God's image. 
a community where when Paul is writing to them, he addresses slaves directly and encourages them in their work. If you look at non-Christian uh, contemporaries of Paul writing about households and about slaves, they never directly address slaves. So it's really radical that Paul is doing that. One commentator sums it up really well when he says that although Paul doesn't directly attack slavery, he puts a massive time bomb underneath it. Because it was biblical principles that inspired William Wilberforce and other Christians to campaign for the abolition of the slave trade in the British Empire in the 19th century. And although our working conditions now are hopefully very different to the time Paul was writing, uh, the principles he describes are still really valuable for us today. And so I'd like to take a look at those four headings. So first, and most importantly, if you take nothing else away from today, I hope that you'll remember that we need to know who it is we're truly working for. Did you notice when I read the passage how many times Paul points out slaves are who they're really working for? Four times, and I've highlighted them for you here, four times Paul tells slaves to work as if they're working for the Lord Jesus and not for their earthly masters. He tells them to obey as if they were obeying Christ himself. He tells them that they are actually bondservants or slaves of Christ himself. He tells them uh, to work as if they're working for the Lord and not for people. And he tells them that the one who will ultimately reward them is not their earthly master, but Jesus himself. You see, what Paul wants you to know is that your boss is not your true boss. Jesus is your real boss. He's the one you're truly working for. And that has an impact on how we work and how we view our work. Our work isn't ultimately coming from our boss or from headquarters, uh, but from Jesus. But did you see how this fact doesn't just apply to the slaves that Paul is writing to? Radically, Paul applies it to their masters too. He says that, they, that slave masters, they have a master. They are serving someone too. Slave masters are serving Jesus as well. And I'm not sure what's going on. Um, there we go. Um, that's really important to know. In the New Testament, Christians called, would have called Jesus Lord. And when they used that word Lord, they would have used the same word to address their earthly master. And that means that Jesus is their ultimate master. They're using the same word to talk about their boss and to talk about Jesus. And that means that slaves obey their masters because of Jesus not because of who their master is. And it means that masters are accountable to someone as well. They have a master too. And that is the most important thing to know about our work, to know about what you'll be doing this time tomorrow, whether you're at home, uh, in an office, or at school. We're truly working for Jesus. So know who you're truly working for. Remember that Paul is writing to slaves who probably did some of the lowest, most degrading tasks in the house washing dirty and smelly feet, sweeping dusty courtyards, slaving away over hot stoves. The pun is not particularly intended there, but I can think of another way to say it. So they're slaving away over hot stoves. They don't get much thanks for their work. They don't get to choose it. But by showing these slaves who they're truly working for, Paul gives dignity, worth, and value to even the smallest, lowest, most unrecognized and unrewarded tasks. 
Paul raises their work and ours from the level of uh, just serving an earthly master, someone that you can see, to serving Jesus Christ, the Lord of all creation. I want to take a quick step back to think about work and God's mission and what it means that Jesus is our true master. It's really important to know that work is a good gift from God. It's not some kind of necessary evil or a way to earn a living. And these are three really quick points to say that our work is part of how we glorify God. Work is how God provides for our needs. And we will work in a redeemed creation in eternity as well. So, first of all, our work is about how we glorify God. That's our aim as followers of Jesus, to glorify God, to show the world what he's like. And work is part of that. If you go back to Genesis, the first book of the Bible, we see that work is part of God's good intention for humanity. In Genesis 1.28, it says, God said to them, to Adam and Eve, the first humans, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And then in the next chapter, in case you don't get that work and kind of doing things is part of what God created people to do, uh, we're told, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And these are in the very first few pages of the Bible. Now, since then, the fall has made work harder and more painful. And if you turn over a few more pages in the Bible, you get to chapter 3 of Genesis, which tells you just how work has got harder and more difficult. But please note that work was there before the fall. God is the true boss who gives humanity work to do, to form and to fill the world he has made, to take care of it, to promote human flourishing. Our daily work is a reflection of God's work in creation. If you read Genesis 1, you see God create order out of chaos, generate provision, bring joy, create beauty, and release potential. And there are ways in which all of our jobs can do that. For example, if you've ever tidied a teenager's bedroom, and maybe you do need some debt or when you do that, um, you'll know what it's like to bring order out of chaos and to put things in their proper place, at least for a few moments. And in that way, you reflect something of who God is because that's what God does. He brings order out of chaos. Or maybe you work in IT and you design a really good form that makes it really easy for customers to fill in their details. That's a way that you might spark joy rather than frustration because it's really easy for them to fill in the form that they need. Or you might create beauty as you redecorate your house. Or if you're an editor like me, you might create beauty as you craft a really good sentence and a really nicely formed article. Or if you are a teacher, you release potential in your students. Or if you're a team leader, as you help your team to do their best. In all these ways, and many more, our work gives us opportunities to show the world something of what God is like. As the late American pastor Eugene Peterson said, work doesn't take us away from God, it continues the work of God. Because our daily work is part of God's mission in the world. It's part of our calling as followers of Jesus to reflect God's glory to the world and to be a witness for him. 
You have been placed right where you are because you have a unique opportunity to reflect who God is and to speak for him to the people around you. So here's a question to maybe think about and to discuss perhaps after the service over coffee. How does your work, whether that work is paid or unpaid, echo God's work in creation and give you opportunities to glorify him? And I know that lots of people in this room do really interesting jobs, so chat to them about that. You might discover something new. Now, here is a very nice uh, loaf of bread. And if you've ever prayed in the Lord's Prayer, give us this day our daily bread, I wonder if you've ever stopped to think about how God does that. Because work is also part of how God provides for our needs. God does not beam down a loaf of bread from heaven to you. You can read about who does that in Exodus, but he doesn't do that for us today. God delegates. He provides our daily bread through farmers and bakers and lorry drivers and supermarket shelf stackers. As Paul says in this passage, our daily work is doing the will of God for others through the provision that we generate. And then lastly, um, as I've taken you from Genesis, I'll take you all the way through to Revelation as well. Um, In the new creation, we will not only be worshipping God, we will be working as well. In Revelation 22 verse 5, John says that redeemed humans will reign forever and ever And that fulfills God's original intention back in Genesis 1 of working with people to rule the world. So God is the one who gives us both the big picture of our work as humanity, uh, continuing his work of creation, and the specific work that we have to do as part of our mission to show people what he's like. So we've seen, first of all, that we need to know who we're truly working for. And second... Doing good work is a good thing. Um, And I'm just going to have some water. So you can sometimes think that our work is valuable because we can earn money. And we've just taken the offering and the money that you earn at work, you can give it to the church. And that's a great thing to do. I really encourage you to do that. Or you might think, oh, my work is valuable because I can talk to my colleague and I can invite them on the Alpha course. And I'm running the Alpha course. I really recommend that you invite your colleagues on the Alpha course. It's great. But I hope that you're starting to see that your work all by itself can be a good thing and be pleasing to God. Paul highlights this to take us back to Ephesians uh, because in his instructions to slaves, it can really be summed up in one word, obedience. He says, bond servants, obey your earthly masters. Now, obedience in modern British culture is not a particularly popular word. But if we remember who we're truly working for, we can work as if we're working for Jesus. And that transforms the way in which we do our work. So if you are in some kind of customer service, if you work in a cafe, how do you serve this customer as if you were serving Jesus himself? Or if you are writing a report, how do you write that report as if you're writing it not for your boss, but for Jesus? Or if you're cooking a meal, how do you cook it as if you were cooking it for Jesus? I think that can really change the way that you see your work if you think about it in that way. 
Uh, when Paul says that slaves should obey their masters with fear and trembling, he doesn't mean being afraid of your boss. It's more about showing appropriate respect, which I don't think we're that good at. I think we love to complain about our bosses. And so do we pray for our boss or complain about them? Because it would be much better to pray for them than to complain about them. Because praying for them may not only change your boss, but also change you and change your attitude towards them as well. Paul goes on to say that they should work with a sincere heart. He's explaining that the important thing is not just the end result of your work that people can see. It's also about the way that you work. Your boss might be able to see into your office, or if you work from home, they may track your keystrokes as you work. But God sees your heart. He sees the attitude that you bring. He sees the work that you do, whether anyone else sees that or not. When we're working with all our hearts, that doesn't mean perfectionism or overworking. Remember, the Bible also talks about Sabbath and rest. So it's not about just becoming a workaholic. It's about excellence. It's about, could I give this piece of work to Jesus? Mark Green, who wrote the book Fruitfulness on the Frontline and the course that some of us did earlier this year, has some really helpful reflections on this theme. He says, God is first and foremost our father, and we are his sons and daughters. So we not only work hard, energetically, competently, and carefully, we work with love in our hearts for God and the people served by our labor. We may or may not love all the tasks we do, but we are called to do all the tasks we do with love for others and out of gratitude for God's overwhelming love for us. Now, before I finish this point about obedience, you might be sitting there thinking, well, you don't know what my boss asked me to do this week. Maybe you were asked to lie or to cover up or to do something that the Bible says we shouldn't do. Paul's point here in Ephesians is that as part of honoring Christ, we should honor those in authority over us by obeying them and doing what they tell us to do. However, other passages of the Bible show us that there is an exception to that rule, which is if obeying that instruction dishonors Christ or breaks biblical instructions, then we shouldn't do that, actually. So if you're here today and you're in a difficult situation like that at work, then please do get advice and prayer from church leaders or trusted Christian friends who can help you think through, how do I live for Jesus in this kind of situation? So we've seen that we need to know who we're truly working for. We've seen that doing good work is a good thing all by itself. And thirdly, that we should work cheerfully. And I wanted to separate out this point to make it nice and obvious because British people love to complain. I did a little bit of research. Apparently, how, let's do a little quiz. How often do you think the average British person complains every day? Shout out some, some numbers. 59. 59. <laughs> Five. Uh, it's three, apparently, according to some research I found online. British people complain, on average, three times a day. We love to complain, and one of the things that we love to complain about is work and how busy we are and how rubbish our boss is, and we just love to complain, don't we? But did you notice what Paul says in verse 7? He says that slaves should render service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. You also translate that, uh, working with enthusiasm. Now, it's helpful to remember again that Paul is writing to slaves who could not choose their work. 
But he tells them to do that work cheerfully anyway. And that was probably surprising for the slaves that first heard this letter, and it might be surprising for you as well. But if we remember who it is we're really working for, that we're working for Jesus, he gave his life for us, then that changes the attitude that we bring to our work. It's really easy to complain about the latest data collection initiative at school or the changes that have been made to lunch breaks or the extra work that you've been given to do. But what if we ask the Lord to help us change our attitude and to work with a goodwill instead, to work gladly and cheerfully, to work in a way that shows people God's love? What if we could show God's love, especially to the most annoying and frustrating, frustrated, frustrating um, uh, colleagues or bosses? And that really does take the power of the Holy Spirit to do that. Because proactively blessing those annoying and frustrating colleagues, or if your main work is at home, maybe your family members, um, is a wonderful way to glorify God and reflect him to those around you. Jesus says in Luke chapter 6, verse 35, Love your enemies and do good, and lend expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Now hopefully your boss is not completely evil, although you might feel like that sometimes. Uh, But Jesus says that if we are kind to them, if we love them, if we proactively bless them, we are being like God. We are showing them something of what God is like because God made the first move towards us. He loved us when we were his enemies. So here's another question you could talk about after the service. How can you bless your most annoying colleague this week? And maybe you could keep one another accountable to how that goes and I hope that maybe next Sunday someone could stand here and say that they blessed their frustrating colleague in some way this week. I'd love to hear how you get on with that. So we've seen that we need to know who we're truly working for, that doing good work is a good thing, and that we are to work cheerfully. Lastly, we need to know that justice is coming. Paul finishes up his instructions to slaves with a reason why they should be obedient to their earthly masters. He says that they should serve knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Whatever things look like for you now, whether your good work is recognized now or not, Paul points almost to an ultimate reward. Sometimes there might be reward and recognition now or simply the satisfaction of a job well done. But Paul reminds us that one day we will hear from Jesus, our true boss, well done, good and faithful servant. So a few years ago when I was at university, I was part of the Christian Union and I was asked to serve as treasurer for a year, which was a job I didn't really want to do. But I did it because I got asked to do it. And I actually found that although it was lots of filling in forms and lots of things that no one really saw or particularly appreciated, that actually... Because of passages like this one, because I knew that God saw me doing that work, I had the reward of knowing no one else sees this, but God sees it, and he is pleased that I'm doing that really well. And so some of that reward that Paul talks about, I think some of that is an ultimate reward that we get 
one day in heaven, but I think we get some of that now as we just do work that maybe only God sees how well we've done it. And that gave me joy, and I hope that it, if, you ha- if that's your experience, that you uh, have joy in that as well. Paul concludes this section with a word to slave masters, which would have been really shocking at the time. He says to masters, do the same to them, do the same to your slaves, and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. When Paul says do the same to them, he means the same kind of loving, wholehearted service. If masters want respect, Paul is saying, they should show respect. It brings out a principle of equality, because before Jesus, everyone is equal. And that's one of the reasons why Christians campaigned for the abolition of the slave trade. And then Paul says, stop your threatening. So threats of physical violence were the main way that slave owners would have operated in Paul's time. But he commands slave owners to stop threatening their slaves because there's a coming day of judgment, because masters have a master in heaven, and that there's one day when everyone is going to stand on the level before Jesus and have to give an account to him. There is no favoritism with Jesus. One commentator says, Masters are told to act toward their servants, bearing in mind the fact that they are themselves servants, and the heavenly master is the one to whom they must give account. So if you're in a leadership position of some kind at work, how do you treat those entrusted to your care? As in all things, Jesus is our example of loving service. And Paul reminds us that whether we are an employer or an employee, uh, whether we are working or not, there is a coming day of judgment. There is a day when we will have to give an account to Jesus for the way we have lived and worked, of the way that we've loved other people, of not just our actions, but as we've seen in this passage, our attitudes as well. There's a coming day when all injustices will be perfectly Righted. As Paul says here, people's status on earth won't count. There's no favoritism with Jesus. Now, the judgment day that Paul talks about has two sides to it, which I've illustrated with these uh, two pictures. There's rescue and there is review. The first part is rescue. So the big question for everyone in the whole world on judgment day will be, what did you do with Jesus? Everyone will have to answer that question because Before a holy and perfect God, we are all imperfect and guilty. Our good deeds will not be enough. We all need rescuing from God's just judgment that's coming on the world. And the good news is that that's exactly what Jesus offers us now through his perfect life, death, and resurrection. We cannot save ourselves. We need rescuing. Only Jesus can rescue us. And for Christians, the good news is that the verdict is already here. We've already been rescued. We're already safe from God's judgment. We're already saved. And so that second part of review is really for Christians. Because if you're not a Christian and your answer to that question, what did you do with Jesus, is, well, I didn't believe in him, then that, that's 
the end of judgment day, really, for you. But for Christians, there's another step to that, which is, Ruby, what did you do with living for Jesus, with representing the one who rescued you? And this is a question, but it's not about salvation. It's not about whether you spend eternity with God or not, because you've already been rescued. You couldn't contribute to it. You needed rescuing. But now, what did you do with that? And that's the sense in which Paul is talking to the Christians in Ephesus. So on that first question about rescue, if you're here and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, it's great that you're with us. And we'd love to chat to you more at the end about why we need rescuing and what it means to follow Jesus. And then on that second question about review, about how are you doing at living for Jesus, However you feel uh, in terms of how you're doing, whether you feel you're doing really well or not so well, there is grace. Because our salvation does not depend on our performance, which is really good news. And it will be a day when we'll receive back the good things that we've done as well. There'll be some kind of reward. We don't really know exactly what that will look like, but there will be. And I think that's really interesting to think about. And the last thing to say about that is that the judge on Judgment Day is Jesus. He's the one who opened the eyes of the blind and healed people. He's the one who died on a cross for us. So to come back to that question at the start, what will you be doing this time tomorrow? Whatever you're doing, uh, whether you're at work, at school, at home, or somewhere else, I hope you now can see that God does care about it and that it's part of his mission for you to show the world what he is like. I hope that knowing who you're truly working for will transform your attitude towards work this week. If you would like to explore more about this topic, I really recommend Mark Green's really good book, Fruitfulness on the Frontline. Um, Mark is part of the London Institute for Contemporary Christianity, or LICC, and they have loads of really helpful resources on their website as well, licc.org.uk. And uh, there are also these little prayer cards, um, which are these little sort of credit card-sized prayer cards, which can fit in your wallet or purse, which are really helpful to take with you that help you think about some of the ways that you represent God as you go about your daily life. And if you'd like to pick up one of those, they're over at the information point at the back on your way out. So here are those questions that I'd really love you to chat about uh, over coffee at the end um, to think about. Maybe start by thinking about how has this passage changed your attitude uh, towards work? Ask about how does your work, whether that's paid or unpaid, uh, echo God's work in creation and give you opportunities to glorify him? How can you bless your most annoying colleague this week? I think that's a great question to talk about. Um, and then maybe think about what's going to change for you this time tomorrow as a result of some of the things that Paul talks about in Ephesians chapter 6. What I'd like to do just to finish is uh, to pray for us all because we'll all be going somewhere uh, on Monday morning. I would imagine we'll all be representing Jesus in some way. And so if you'd like to stand up um, and I think it would just be really good to think about what we'll be doing this time tomorrow and what, how God might want to use us uh, in that uh, space. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you are the Lord of all creation, that you are the one who 
worked in the beginning and that you give us work to do as well. Thank you that our work is a good gift from you and an opportunity to show the world what you're like. I pray for my friends here as we go out into the world this week that we would know that you go with us, uh, that you go before us, that you fill us with your spirit and that you want to use us to live and to speak for you in the places that we go this week. I pray that when we get back together next Sunday that we would have stories of how you've worked in our workplaces, in us and through us to glorify you. In your name, amen.